have a rather simple lesson. Well, all of mine are simple, but maybe this one's even more simple this morning about the book of Jonah. Maybe you've seen it if you've walked by that room on the left there. I don't know if it's my wife's class or my daughter's class, but there's a uh, there's a garbage can in there turned over on its side with two big googly eyes in the front, some teeth on it, fins, and it's uh, the great fish. I started to say whale. I'll probably say whale ten times today. Just forgive me. I know some versions of the King James say whale in the book of Jonah, but the word in the book of Jonah is a great fish, uh, although, you know, there's a little bit different word used in the Greek in the New Testament, but in any event, it was some kind of a great fish. And I know whale's not a fish according to the way we look at it, but uh, I don't think I'm going to hold the ancient people hostage to our system of classification of animals because that changes all the time. If you know anything about taxonomy, the, the way they classify different animals, they're always moving them from, from group to group depending on how they look. And lots of them, especially since the discovery of DNA, have been shifted. Animals we didn't think were related. Uh, once again, according to our understanding of what of DNA, you know. But anyway, don't get hung up on whether it's a whale or a fish. It was something that God made, a creature God made to swallow Jonah. But I want to talk about that story today of Jonah. She had the kids in there and trying to get them to go in that garbage can, and they wouldn't. They really wouldn't do it. <laughs> Just won't. She can't open that mouth up and get the kids to crawl in there. They didn't really like that idea very much. I told her she should put like soft, velvety stuff inside like it's guts, you know, and a little thing hanging down that they might go in better, but they could feel gooey or something, but she didn't do that either. But anyway, it got me thinking about this book. So I want to talk about the book of John because I think it's it's commonly talked about. Maybe the point's misunderstood sometimes. And I know I do know that one of the main points of the book is misunderstood or not even talked about at all, which we'll try to come to at the end of this lesson. But we're focused on the part of the story, which I'm not going to get into, where Jonah is told by God to go preach to the great city of Nineveh, the, the chief, one of the chief cities of the ancient world. At the time that this book was written, probably the greatest, most powerful kingdom on the earth. He was told to go preach to them or else God, he was going to destroy them. Jonah didn't want to do that because he didn't want the Ninevites to repent. It wasn't because he was afraid so much. He didn't want them to repent. He knew that God was merciful, and if they repented, that they would God would spare them. He didn't want them to be spared. He wanted them to be destroyed. And so he ran the other way, went way out of the way, went the opposite direction. And you can hear read sermons all over the internet on this, and I've preached some myself. But God caused this great fish to swallow Jonah after the in the, in the middle of the storm when he was thrown overboard and and spit him back up on dry land. And he headed toward Nineveh, great capital of Assyria. And um, in in the middle of the book, then chapter three. Let's focus on that part. Now the word of the Lord, or word of Jehovah, came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I will tell you. There's so many things to say about this book and this message. We have this picture sometimes from our limited understanding of the Old Testament 
in the way it's often been taught in Christian churches, that God was only concerned about the Jews, that he was going to save the Jews, and they were God's chosen people, so he was going to save them. That's who he was concerned about. He didn't care about any of the other people on the earth. That simply is not true. And if we just look at it a little bit, you will see many places all throughout the Old Testament where God is trying to show his concern to all the nations of the earth. They weren't under the law of Moses. No, they weren't keeping the law. Well, because they don't, they didn't have to keep the law. It wasn't for them to keep. It was given just to the Jews. And I was told when I was young that since they didn't keep the law, all the nations were lost. That's not true. They were lost because they were sinners for not keeping the law God gave the nations. We don't know all what that law was, but that's why they were lost. The Jews were lost because they wouldn't keep the law that God gave them. But God was concerned about Nineveh. And two or three of the prophets of the Old Testament are speaking to Gentile nations. They're not speaking to Israel and Judah. They're speaking to Gentile nations to get them to repent or to pronounce God's judgment upon them because of their sin so that they would repent. And Jonah is one such book. God, God takes, this is a story that's re- repeated all about, down through the centuries over and over again by both Jews and Gentiles, the story of Jonah. And the central feature of the book to me is that God sent Jonah to a pagan nation, to a nation that was not his people, in order to save them. Not save them by keeping the law of Moses, but save them so they could repent of their immorality and their haughtiness and things like that that he condemned them for. But go preach to Nineveh, because I want them to repent. And so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. This time he obeyed God. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. In other words, take you three days to walk from one end of the city to the other. Now, we're not sure how long that journey might, you know, what day, what distance that was, but he's trying to tell you a three-day journey is a big city spread out across. You, you can fly over some cities in the United States. You can fly over New York City uh, or Chicago or something, and you just can't believe this. Houston, you can't believe the extent of, of, of what you're seeing of lights above it. Well, Nineveh was that kind of city in the ancient world. And Jonah entered began to enter the city on the first day's walk. So he comes up to the city and he starts to go in. It's such a big city, he's not going to go to the middle and preach. He starts preaching when he gets to the city because he's got to walk all the way across it to preach. And the first day's journey and walk, and then he cried out and said, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, you might expect to see the rest of the sermon there in the book. What all did he say? And you would especially want to know what, I'd like to know what the rest of the sermon was, if there was any more than that, because of what happened. But we don't know anything about the sermon. That's what we know. Yet 40 days and then it shall be overthrown. You only could wish that I could preach a sermon so short. You see. I had a friend to do that on Super Bowl Sunday some years ago. A friend of mine had preached out in, I think he was in California or New Mexico or somewhere at the time. He preached a sermon on Super Bowl Sunday night on expectations. You should have known what was coming. Nobody did. And this guy is, uh, he's, uh, what's the word for, Kenny? offbeat. He's a friend of mine. Anyway, he sits up and says, well, you know, you have expectations about life and things, and, and we have expectations about church, and, and he says, we shouldn't be, we should be careful about our expectations because they can be upset. We should follow God's word, you know. He says, for example, you think that on Sunday night you're expecting 
for us to sing, me to get up here and preach about 30, 40 minutes, you know, and then we'll be done. We'll do this. He said, that's what you're expecting. But he says, we're not going to do that. He says, this sermon is over. Let's stand and sing. That was his sermon on Sunday night. Oh, he got in a lot of trouble for that. Because, because it was Super Bowl Sunday. He was just preaching a sermon on expectations, you know. Well, anyway, uh, no, I'm not going to do that. Here's the next verse. After this lesson, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown or destroyed, some versions say. So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. And then word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe and covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his noble saying, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will return and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? And then God saw their works that they turned from their evil way and God relented from the disaster that he said that he would bring upon them and he did not do it. You know, in looking at this, I've got a lot of things to say about that real quick, but in looking at this, I think this is kind of a slap in the face to the Jews at that time because he had been sending his prophets to them with the same message and they don't repent. <laughs> and here's this pagan king, the king of Assyria, their enemy. He hears the word of God come up from the people, hears about this message that Jonah's preaching, comes to the palace, and he says, yes, we've been wrong. In fact, he issues a decree, a decree that very few kings of Israel ever issued. We're going to turn ourselves toward God and repent and turn from our evil way. Very few kings of Israel or Judah ever said such a thing as this king of Nineveh on the word of God. So I think this was a slap to them. Even the pagans will respond to me sometimes, but you won't. And so you see this, I think that's interesting that he began to preach in one, picture is, he began to preach in one end of the city, going to walk three days across it, preaching as he goes along is the idea. And finally the people, the people that hear him begin to, begin to put on sackcloth. We've been wrong. We're wrong for what we're doing. They were living in ignorance or whatever, willfulness, but they repented. And it became so widespread that the word came to the palace and the king heard the message that they told him. And he issues a proclamation, even for the animals. This, we're, on a fa we're not going to eat. We're going to fast. We're going to change our ways. We're going to stop being violent. See, God's accusations against Nineveh, and you can read about these in the book of Nahum a little bit later. God's accusations against Nineveh were not only pride, but immorality and violence. That's the big charges against Nineveh, immorality and violence. They were a very violent people. The, 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 the Assyrian armies, even the Bible describes this, were known for going through a village as they were on their way, and they would, they would rip up the women, pregnant women, in the streets with swords and spill the children out into the, the embryos out into the street. They'd catch little children as they rode by, catch them by their hair, by the arm, and sling them against a wall or a tree as they rode by. They, they, they did this to whole villages. They killed everybody they could come across as they went through. So the people would not resist. They were known to be violent. And when you read the other descriptions, 
they were they were like a locust plague, chariots with horses and iron. And and that when you heard the Assyrians were coming towards your village, you know they were they were uh, terrified because they knew that's very likely to be killed. And so this is what the Assyrians were like. They had no mercy and violent. And yet, yet the work, the preaching of Jonah turned them. It came, must have come at just the right time. They turned away from their sin. And uh, we could only wish it could be so today. But God changed his mind about this punishment. He had set a punishment for them, a date even, and he changed his mind because they repented. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Let's look at these words here real quickly, two or three things, and we'll wrap it up. Yet 40 days. What does that mean? What that tells you is that there is a limit to God's patience. That's what it tells you. There's a limit. May not, we may not be able to guess the limit, but there's a limit to which he will go with people. It says he's long-suffering and probably is the longer limit than we would give people around us, but there's a limit. And he's giving these people a chance. Even these pagans, he gave them a chance to repent and to change. There are so many things that have happened in my lifetime as an American that have been God giving us a chance to see the consequences for our actions, both individually and as a nation. Things that happen, that you, I, I can remember things, I won't tell you the stories because I'm ashamed of it, but a couple things happened to me as a teenager after they happened. And I thought to myself, that was what they call a warning shot across the bow where you would sometimes in naval warfare shoot across the bow of a ship to say, stop. I think they still do this. The shot, you don't shoot at the ship, you shoot a little ahead. So saying, I can hit you, but I'm not going to right now. And that's supposed to stop the captain from proceeding. And in life, we get those. We get those, both individually and maybe as a country, cities, they get those warning shots of things that happen that are hard to believe that, that show you what the future is going to look like and to cause people to stop and to change what they're doing. I mentioned this on um, the radio. I don't think Gary was very impressed by it, but yeah, so what? Anyway, uh, that in after 9-11, see, I'm old enough to remember 9-11, Apparently, a lot of people in our country are not old enough to remember 9-11. And uh, you'd think they would, you'd think they could remember. But I remember thinking, this is a, this is possibly a judgment of God against our country to cause us to repent. Not the final judgment, but a shot to cause us to reconsider our ways. And to consider what kind of country we're becoming, because we were beginning to be very divided then. I mean, I, compared to now, we were a, a picture of harmony, but uh, we were beginning to be divided even then. And and I thought this will be a chance for Americans to consider the blessings that God's given them, and that they are a people that have great potential, and we should love each other, and we should we should repent and turn back to God. Well, twenty years have gone by, and for about. Two weeks, that's what it looked like. Maybe two weeks, maybe a month, that's what it looked like. But now that soon fell apart because we had too many uh, elections to win and other stuff to happen, for that to happen. But and that's the whole, my whole point here. 
20 years have gone by now, more than 20 years have gone by. So you can look back a little bit and you can make a little preliminary assessment of the effect of 9-11 on the country. And what they, what the study I saw the other day was showing is that that's almost a, they can mark a change in their surveys that they were taking for years about people's belief in God and trust in spirituality and feelings of, you know, heart, trust in, in the country and all that. And after 9-11, all those things fell off the table. The numbers of people that believe in God and trust him is way lower than it was in 2001. The number of people that believe spirituality is important, off the table. The number of people that have confidence in the United States as a good nation is through the floor. The number of people that think there's a way we can solve our problems and work together is through the floor. See, we were given a judgment. We That yet 40 days, God says, okay, here's a little warning shot for you. Uh, you can respond. Which way are you going to respond? Well, we've responded as a nation and maybe as individuals in exactly the wrong way since that time. Exactly the wrong way. There's more immorality. More people's lives are destroyed by selfishness and sexuality and immorality of every kind, by violence. Instead of violence going down as it had been, you know, during the 80s and so forth, it's going back up again since that time. And that's only the violence that they choose to count. They, they don't even count a lot of things as violent. So we have not taken the message at all that was set, sent to us to see if we could change our ways. Jonah got his message. Getting swallowed by the great fish was a message to Jonah. And he turned around and walked the other way. Once he picked all the seaweed and vomit off of him, he walked the other way. But 40 days, God has a limit. That's another great question about Book of Jonah. It's such a, it's a tight. Christ says, as Jonah was in the belly of the whale or fish for uh, three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the earth in, in Matthew chapter 12. And so you can talk about that. But I think that what he's, a lot of people say is being said there is that Jonah actually died in the fish. He actually died. People say, oh, no one could ever survive being swallowed by a whale. Well, maybe they didn't. Maybe they didn't survive. Maybe they were resurrected. That's what some people say about this book, that he did die. And when you read his prayer of salvation, it was a prayer that he offered from the belly of the whale that brought about his salvation. But Jonah was a changed man in some ways, we're going to see. Yet 40 days. I don't know how many days God will give you for you to repent. I don't know. I don't know what you need to do. That yet means there is a time limit to God's mercy. That's what the word yet means, doesn't it? In 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. Yet 40 days. There's a time limit for you too, my friend, and for me, for us to, us to do what's right if we need to change our lives, to turn to the Lord, to lean upon him, to become a Christian, whatever it may be. There's a time limit. And, and God will hold you to that. Now then, uh, what people do, though, we'll read a little bit here, is they forget this. In Second Peter three, and this I, th I think this is probably speaking of the end of time. At this point, in, at this juncture, that's what I think about this passage. You read it with me and see what you think. Because, but some of the passages that seem like they're talking about the end of time in the Bible probably aren't talking about the end of time because these great judgments 
are in, are they look alike. They look like the same thing, but they're not. Peter says, but beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness. Just because he hasn't come yet doesn't mean he's not coming. Yet 40 days. He won't come at 20. He'll come at 40. Because he hasn't come at 20, don't think he's not coming. And I just get concerned for people that keep wanting God to come back and judge America and judge the earth. I'm worried about that. that. He's not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but he is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, there's so much hidden in there we could talk about. We'll just briefly mention this. See, this is another thing here. For, for you Christians who are angry about immoral people in, in your families and in the places where you live and in the country who do wicked, blasphemous, disgusting things and curse the name of God, and you want God to, to judge them, I can understand that. But God is not willing that any should perish. This Dylan Mulvaney, God wants to save Dylan Mulvaney. If you don't know who he is, don't bother to look it up. All right, anyway, you thought I was going to tell you. Uh, no, God wants to save that young man or woman or whatever. He's a young man. God wants to save him. Will he? Can he? He can. Will he be saved? Not unless a great deal of change is made. But God still wants that to happen. Maybe some Christian can be an instrument of change in this place. Uh, so he's not willing that people should be paired. He didn't want the Ninevites to all be destroyed. Jonah wanted him to destroy the Ninevites. We may want God to destroy all these people that are wicked, but God doesn't want that. But he wants them all to come to repentance. And there's the other side of the coin. That God isn't going to stop this judgment just because the people would be sad if he hurt them. He wasn't going to stop the judgment against Nineveh just because the people were upset and they all cried out, you know, oh, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? He wasn't going to stop that judgment just because they got upset. He was only going to stop it if they repented. And they did. They turned around. Now, here's the thing about that, though. Apparently, the repentance of Nineveh only lasted a few years. Kind of like some people being sorry after 9-11 lasted a couple weeks. Because by the time the book of Nahum was written, a hundred years later or so, he he was ready to destroy them. And he did destroy them. By the way, I saw a picture of Judy and I, somehow popped up on my phone. I don't know why these pictures pop up, but it has a picture of me and Judy with, uh, with a sign behind us from three years ago saying, uh, welcome to Copper, uh, Copper, Nafu, Copper Nafum, which, which is the city of Nahum. Capernaum, that's what it was. The city that Jesus went to, Capernaum, means the village of Nahum. So that's where he was from, Capernaum. And um, they, they remembered this story there. But he goes on to say here in First Peter, excuse me, Second Peter 3, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, meaning it's going to come in a time when people uh, are not aware of it, not, not expecting it. They're not paying attention. They know thieves come, but they are not paying attention. This is what he said about the days of Noah, Jesus did, that the people were eating and drinking, and then the floods came and washed them away. 
They were going about marrying and giving in marriage. They were doing their normal things. They knew the judgment was coming, but they didn't pay attention. And it, he destroyed them. He says that the heavens will pass away with a great noise. The elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works in it shall be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conduct and godliness? The point of teaching us about the second coming is not to just to satisfy our curiosity so we can go and preach about eschatology and have workshops on the second coming. The purpose of that is so that we can change the way we are. What manner of persons ought you to be if you think that God is coming to judge the world? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of that which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, according to his promise, we look for a new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. So God is coming again to judge. He may judge you in your life. You may, you, your judgment day may begin when, uh, just before you die. That could be any time. But God is coming to judge yet 40 days. And then he, let's talk about Nineveh for a few minutes. This great city was a wicked place. A place of violence. Just like Ezekiel described the city of Jerusalem, and he's comparing it in some places to these pagan capitals, he said the rocks are covered in blood. The rocks of that city have blood on them, and they are not covered. The blood is not covered by the blood of the murderer. God says when there's blood on a rock from a murderer, the blood has another, more blood needs to fall on top of that rock. That's the blood of the murderer. Blood must be covered by other blood. Now, that, of course, goes to the idea that Christ's blood covers my sin that I've committed against God and so forth. But the point is, here was a nation, Israel and other nations, where murder was common and they weren't doing anything about it. They were not practicing executing justice when it should be done. I was reading something yesterday or day before about the, the number of percentages of women that are sexually abused. And I'm even, I'm not even talking about what some people call sexual abuse, which may or may not be. I'm talking about act, actual sexual abuse. Uh, huge percentages. Men, you need to understand this. Huge percentages of women, young and old, have experienced sexual abuse in their lifetime, usually by one or more men. Oftentimes a family member or a trusted person in their life. Sometimes by people that are people like me that they're supposed to be able to trust. And they've experienced sexual abuse at the hands of these men. And sometimes it's women that do this. This damages so deeply. They carry lifetime emotional and other scars from this. And, and, not, and you know what this, what's so astounding about that? Is that almost none of those men will ever be brought to justice. The number of those men or women who do these things and are ever ever see the inside of a courtroom is very, very small. I hear the silence in the room. It's, it's a terrible thing. And what happens then, the thing that's really bad about it, is that kind of defense, and men have defended this way of doing things for so long and protected other men when they shouldn't have. So they wouldn't lose face or that good man wouldn't do this. And it happens in church everywhere else that, that the result is that secular people in the world have started a campaign against this and they've got it all wrong too. 
believe every woman. That's almost as demonic as believe every man. Maybe it's more demonic, I don't know. So the world's solution to this is not going to be justice either. And that's what's really sad in the end. But the point is, God expects us as humans and have a society in a city where wrongdoing is punished. And it ought to be punished, not made excuses for. It shouldn't be done unjustly, unfairly like it often is, with prejudice and with malice toward certain kinds of people or certain people and treating one crime over another or one perpetrator better than another. Shouldn't be that at all. But God demands that we exercise a sense of justice in our society, in our cities, and cover the blood of those who are being hurt, who are victims. But it wasn't being done in Nineveh. It wasn't being done in Israel. And God was going to judge them for that. And the violence of that city. You have a society based on physical conquest where they're going out across the world and they're training all their young men to ride in chariots and carry swords and kill people and wantonly kill the innocent people and children. And you tell me they don't bring that back home to their families and to their city? Well, of course they do. We're going to reap a whirlwind from what we've been doing the last 20 years, whatever the justification may be. I'm not even arguing whether it's justified. Really, I'm not. But when you send a couple of generations of young American men around the world and and teach them how to be violent, you can't tell me there won't be a violent response somewhere else. This is this is not it. Now, some people go the other way. I, God is it's not a simple world, but there is a, a a price to be paid for that. There's a price to be paid for not doing anything either about injustice in the world. Sometimes injustice requires that people make the sacrifice to shed their own blood and the blood of others. That's, that's the nature of things. We can't fix that broken world. But when, a, when And you can't tell me that a generation of two of young men and young women raised uh, playing violent games on TV where they're blowing people's brains out all the time and blood spattering all over the, the screen and this is their entertainment. You can't convince me that there's not an effect of that. Okay? There's got to be an effect, and it usually isn't good. We say, well, at least you're not shooting real people. Well, at least today they're not. When a country, when a country's culture becomes so, in, when violence and bloodshed becomes so ingrained in a country's psyche, in people's psyche, um, it's not a good thing. I can't, it's, even God, he needed David to do what he did, but he wouldn't let David build the temple because David had been a man of war. Man of, man of blood. He loved David, maybe more than anybody that's ever lived. But he was trying to tell us in that, in what he did about his temple, that my kingdom is a kingdom of peace. And so the warrior has to beat his sword into a plowshare to be in my kingdom. So when we glorify this, and Hollywood has spent all of my lifetime glorifying violence one way or another, and now they're worried about Americans owning a, a pistol. I, I mean, I just don't get it. What do we think the result is going to be? Anyway, Jeremiah says this. We've got to move on here real quick. Now, then the word of the Lord came to me saying, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter? He took Isaiah, took Jeremiah down to the potter's house and the potter's wheel. I got a whole sermon on this. You spin that potter's wheel, put the lump of clay on there. You get that wheel spinning. You take your hands and maybe some water and begin to form different vessels. With a pot. I love doing it. And you'll get one built part of the way and a rock will be in there and it'll break it all in and start over again. 
Sometimes you think you're going to make a beautiful Grecian urn and all you can make is a is an ashtray, you know, because the clay is so bad, right? Or your skill is so poor. But he shows he shows Jeremiah this. This potter not able to do what he wants to do with this clay because the clay is full of rocks. O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter says the Lord? Look, as the day is in the pot as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. The instant that I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up or to pull down or to destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. He's not he's talking to Israel, but he does he mean Nineveh? Well, it's obvious he means Nineveh and Babylon and whatever, America, whoever country uh, deserves this judgment. The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it, if it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good with which I said I would benefit it. Now that's the verse, verse 10 is the verse that should scare modern Americans. That's the verse that should concern you. Because we sing almost as a national anthem, God bless America. Can he? Has he? He has. But our sins, sometimes, they've become such that yet 40 days. But he says, I'll, I can make a judgment, a pass a judgment of blessing or cursing. And I'll change either one based on repentance. In Jonah 4, Here's the end of the story. We're going to stop here. But So Jonah goes and preaches. City repents. He was absolutely shocked. He was very angry about that. You'd think he'd be happy, but he wasn't. This is what's missed in the book of Jonah. Not just the whale part we talk about, but at the end of the book of Jonah, he, he's angry that this city has repented. He's so upset about this, and he knows immediately God's not going to destroy him now. Oh my goodness, he's not going to destroy him. I want him to kill all these people, get rid of this city. But he won't do it now. So he goes up on a hill, and he wants to see what's going to happen. And it was hot up there. And he was complaining because it was hot. So God had a vine grow up like Jack and the Beanstalk. Maybe Kudzu, I don't know which. A vine grew up over his head and shaded him. Oh, he was so happy because the vine shaded him. Then God sent a worm and ate the vine the next day. And the vine died. And he was very angry again because the vine died. But the Lord said, Jonah, chapter 4, verse 10, you have had pity on the plant for which you have not labored nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. You have pity on the plant. You, you, you feel strongly about this plant. You're sorry it's been destroyed. You're sorry it's dead because it, you liked it. And you didn't have anything to do with that plant. You just benefited from it. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left and much livestock? You are worried about the vine because it made you feel better. And you had pity on it. Do you not think I should have pity on this great city? 120,000 people, and that's probably just the adults who cannot discern between their right and left. And then he throws in the livestock even. <laughs> I'm going to destroy it because his judgments impact them too. 
Do you realize how many millions of horses died in World War II? Ever have pictures of the great German army? The great armies of France? You know what they were using in World War II to pull their stuff around? Horses and donkeys. It was us Americans that brought the jeeps and the vehicles. That's, that's actually true. And hundreds of thousands of horses and stuff were lost in, in most of these battles. Because we were killing them all. And, and it was a, they had, eventually they had to eat them. Uh, it's an interesting story. I won't get into all that. But he says here, you don't think I care about this city? You don't want me to have mercy on them? I care about Nineveh. And you should care about them too. We can stand up here and you can, uh, you can talk about our society, what people do and things you see. But God has compassion on these people. I talked on the radio this morning about an article I read this week about a, a woman who is a, uh, she's an OnlyFans celebrity. OnlyFans is a personalized porn site that women can go on or men too and they, they can um, take clients and they make their own personal porn videos for them. And they have other things they release everybody and so they make a lot of money. This woman says, I am proud to be a Christian porn star. And she's talking about how she's uh, Christian and loves the Lord and all this stuff, but she also is happy because she's able to, her ministry is making people happy and giving them pleasure. And so she's a Christian porn star. And oh, and by the way, I made a million dollars last year doing this. As a side note, and her husband, he loves, he's the one who got her to do it. Which is worse, him or her? I don't know. But should we have pity on her? There's a lot wrong there. There's a lot going on. And the husband, a lot wrong there. We should have pity. Forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown, destroyed. This is what's coming for all of us, for, for everything in the world. Now, I'm going to go back to a passage that is very possibly the end of time in the book of Revelation. It certainly pictures a judgment that seems like the end of time, one that we ought to be thinking about. But if, if we were to meditate and contemplate this scene, living, sitting here in air conditioned, soft comfort of ch these chairs and the soothing sound of my voice as you nod off, we should think carefully about this. He says in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on the, on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away. Oh, I want to see the face of Jesus. Well, let me tell you, there's a judgment day coming. And the people's reaction, the whole earth, when they saw the, when they see the face of Jesus sitting on this throne, they flee from him. And I saw, but there was found no place where there's nowhere to run. There's no place to go. It's a situation where you don't want to be there, but there's no place to go. And the dead, I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. The books were open. Another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. And sea gave up the dead who were in it. And death and Hades delivered up the dead that were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. There's coming a day 
in which you will stand before this great throne to be judged by what you've done, whether you like it or not. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be destroyed. There's coming a judgment day. And the only way that God will relent for you is if you repent. Because he said, if your name is not written in the book of life here, then you'll be cast into the, into the lake of fire. That's it. How do you get your name written there? Well, you become a Christian, a servant of the Lord. You turn away from wrong. You, you turn toward God. And every day you make that choice as best you can to turn toward God and away from what's wicked. You make that choice each day. That's why Peter would say in Acts 2.38, when the people cried out, "What men and brethren, what shall we do? You, you know the verse. He says, repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. You shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And it says, with many other words, he testified and said, save yourselves from this perverse and crooked generation. You're living in a crooked and perverse generation, he tells those people. Save yourself from them because they're headed to judgment. You can save yourself from that. So that's one way to start. Become a Christian. Put on Christ in baptism and be made new and clean and avoid this judgment because God will bring about the judgment that we see here if you don't repent. So repent and be baptized. The other way is we turn back to God. When we see that we've done wrong as a Christian, we turn back to him in repentance repeatedly over and over. Keep going back toward what God says. That's what the people God demanded of the people then. That's what he expects of us. Well, we're going to stop the lesson. We've gone too long. And I appreciate your thinking about these lessons from the book of, from the book of Jonah. They were ho- hopefully some things that will help us to, to uh, take seriously the situation that's set before us. We're going to sing number 655, There's a Fountain Free, right now as a way to encourage you to come down to the front to become a Christian or to have us pray with you about a wrong or a sin. Can we help you? Let's stand and sing.